Over the last uh, 30 years, my wife and I have been involved in planting churches in a, a number of Middle Eastern countries, and we've learned a few lessons that uh, have helped us uh, as we've gone through this process of planting churches. So once we've brought the believer up to the place where he has uh, tested and uh, looked at our community, he joins your community, a lot of questions have got to be asked then. For we as church planters, how do we go about this process of actually planting a community? And when we go into a new area, how do we start this? And there's just a couple things in conclusion here we want to look at of, that are important issues. And one is to define the area of our church plant. We discovered early on that it's, it's important to say, what are the perimeters? How far away are we working uh, from home? Down when we were working among the Bedouin, uh, we could have someone, a Bedouin, come to Christ three hours away out in the desert. Now, that happened to us, but how often can we get out on a three-hour drive to meet one believer, and how do we get that believer to fellowship with somebody who's three hours drive away or five hours drive away over somewhere else? So we need to look at a particular area, and sometimes we've looked in a city and said, we need to do walking distance from where we're at, because maybe people don't have access to cars and they would like to just walk, and so just draw a line. Here we are, here's the apartment building, so whatever is a comfortable walking distance, and this is the community we want to look at. And then we define the community. We, we look at it and say, well, are there Christians in this community? Maybe Catholics or Greek Orthodox. Are there, are there Muslims? And what kind of Muslims? How many different kinds of Muslims are there? And try to decide and maybe look at the wider area and say, maybe we're in a bad location. Maybe we need to move into an area that doesn't have so many broken, fragmented pieces of community, but maybe is more one or another kind of. So defining that, defining an area is important. And then we used uh, pre-evangelism tools. These are what we called SALT-type tools earlier on in the course. And we endeavored to go through and influence the entire community. So we would like everybody in all of these apartment buildings and all of these homes to be aware that there are Christians living among them to be aware that this is who the Christians are, this is what Christians believe, and to accept that Christians are good people and that we are there, we're amongst them, and, and we're accepted in the community as Christians who live there. And so we, we are involved in talking to people, storying, visiting on the street, and just making our presence felt in the community so that people knew who we were. There are loving, caring, kind people, and there were Christians, and we're there. Sometimes we might use some sort of media or mass media if it's allowed, if it's possible. Um, the question with mass media always is, who does the follow-up? And I've seen many people who devise these mass media programs that cover all kinds of people. And one office we were in, they had a huge box. And they had all these cards that had come back. of People had filled in the card and sent it back. And all these cards are in this glass box. And we said, so what are you doing with them? And they said, Doing with them? No. This is what we got. We got all these cards back of people who have accepted Christ, and they put them on display. No follow-up. Nobody called them. I mean, how would you follow me? Somebody got a mass media program. It was big, but they never thought through who's going to follow up. If you remember my friend Abdullah, he had 30,000 letters in his house of people who had written to radio and television broadcasts responding back. Now, how does one man follow all those people up? 
So they had great to do television and radio and newspaper, but who's going to do all the personal work of following them up and finding people and trying to share Christ with them? So be careful you don't chew off too much, but don't limit the Lord either in what maybe the Lord wants to do. So we try to influence the whole area. And then God gives us people. He shows us people who are open, people who are seeking, people who are not just not interested, but somewhat interested or maybe even seekers. And then we begin the process of visitation. And we found that we did a lot of visitation. My wife would visit different than I would visit. We split up so we could cover more people. As team members, we split up so we could visit in more homes. And we visited from morning till evening. Visit, visit, visit. I remember once... My daughter woke up and uh, at home in her bed. She was very young. She was just a baby, and she was very disturbed. And we realized that she had never seen her house because she always uh, was asleep when we got up in the morning and put her in the car. And then we would visit all day long, and at nighttime, we would put her in her crib because she'd fallen asleep in the car. But on, on our day off, she would wake up in this strange bed and wouldn't recognize it because she didn't know her own home because we were in people's homes so much. So that's the challenge we have. Can you get out and visit? Can you be in people's homes all day long? So during the day, there are certain people you can visit. During the evening, there are other people you can visit who are at home. And make your presence felt as we told stories, as we visited, as we um, shared about the gospel. The secret to church planting is threefold. It's visitation, visitation, visitation. And you've got to do it. You've got to be in people's homes. And the secret is not just to visit. Friendship evangelism says, I'm going to visit and visit, and then maybe someday I'll get a chance to share the gospel. What we suggest is that as we visit, we look for opportunities to say things, just to say something meaningful, particularly to pray with people. And maybe, maybe there's a need, maybe there's a, some need that, that's relevant, uh, some relative or something in their family, and we say, oh, I'd like to pray for that. And they say, oh, you pray? Yes, I'd like to pray for that. Can I pray right now? And we bow our heads and we pray for that situation in their home. And that makes a huge impact on people. And soon we found that we were being welcomed into people's homes. We were being invited. And some people would say, we have a problem in our family. Could you come to our house and pray for it? Because they liked it that we would come and pray for the needs in their family. So they were open to us praying. Muslims everywhere are happy when we pray. And we would come into their homes and we would pray with them. And then we would discover as we, we talked with people that they would have questions and we would begin to talk about spiritual things and very soon we could start Bible studies and we would get out the Bible and uh, soon we were sharing about the Bible in people's homes and sometimes neighbors would come and others would come because we did it openly, we did it transparently, we weren't doing it secretly. Even though we're involved in countries that are considered closed on the outside or difficult countries, we found the important thing was to do things openly and in public. It's a very important thing. So many people are so afraid. Yet I discover when Jesus was taken before the court and when they accused him of many things, he said, don't ask me, don't ask these people. Ask the crowds. Nothing was done in secret. I learned from that. Nothing was done in secret. Be open and be honest with people and share and let people know who you are. Let people come into your house. We, our neighbors and friends, we were welcome to come into our house. And sometimes they'd go into our bedroom and they'd go through our stuff and they'd, they'd know everything we had in our house because we had no secrets. We weren't hiding anything. 
and we didn't have any trouble with the secret police or with you know uh, authorities because all of our neighbors said, oh, we know them. Yeah, we've been in their house. We know everybody who goes there because nothing was done in secret. It was done out in the open as we shared with people honestly and shared with them about uh, the Bible and what we found in the Bible and began to share our faith. Well, the question that comes up often as we're trying to plant churches is how big do we make them? Do we want cell churches? Do we want house churches? Do we want... Um, uh, you know, larger meetings and so forth. And th there's no direct answer to this. But there was a guy who did a study. Uh, his name was Dunbar. And he came up with a number. And his number uh, was 150 people. And that's uh, according to the official studies. And he said there are group dynamics that happen when the number is bigger than 150 people. Uh, he said that as we go through life, all of us can relate to maybe 1,000 to 1,200 people. That's how many people we know and we relate to, we know their names. But a smaller intimate group could be about 150 people. But a smaller group than that, maybe you get down to a very small group of 15, 20 people uh, we can relate to in a personal way. Now, we've had experience in different cultures in different ways. Some cultures like small groups of 8, 10, 12 people, and they enjoy that because they can be intimate. Discovered in the Arab world that the small groups didn't work. People wanted a larger group. They wanted to be able to slip into the group and not be as noticed at the beginning. So they preferred groups that were at least 150 people or 100 people or 80 people. But a small group, they felt very conspicuous because everybody would know them and ask them who they were and where they were from and they didn't want to give that information. So newcomers were very reluctant to come into a small group. So don't be afraid when you're starting your groups to maybe think differently or maybe to... to um, to have different approaches. In one uh, a situation we knew, the believers were being very careful. They didn't want just anybody to join them. They were afraid of, of people coming in. So the teacher who was involved with this, he, he had a very interesting approach. He said, let's do parties. And so every once in a while, he would throw a party at his house. And everyone who was invited to the party were people who were, had gone through discovery lessons. And also, the Christians were there. The cell group was there. Now, the cell group knew that everyone who came had done, had done the discovery lessons and maybe said the sinner's prayer. And so they would meet after the party and discuss who they were going to invite into the smaller group. And that way, they, they could get to know these people without them realizing that they were being checked out by the other Christians. And sometimes they're going, well, we're not comfortable with that, that person. And so they would continue on in fellowship with the teacher, maybe after a party or two. Then they would finally be invited to join the group. So you can do it in different ways. You can have different dynamics when you're planting a church. One group I know, they met on Fridays. They had a most interesting way of meeting. Their service on Friday started about 8 in the morning and it ended at midnight. And it moved around to different people's houses. And the way it worked was, when it came your turn, it was in your house, you were the host and hostess, and uh, your door opened at about 8 in the morning. And it was come and go church. Because people couldn't just come at a set time. If they came at a set time every a week, their family would ask, well, where do you go on Friday morning or Sunday morning at, at 10 o'clock? So rather than that, they had come and go. And whenever you could slip away and come to this apartment, that was open from 8 in the morning till midnight, and somebody was there to pray with you, to share from the scriptures with you. If there were several of you, you might, uh, you might have uh, a little more of preaching type or teaching uh, thing going on, maybe some breaking of bread. 
Maybe someone would come. Whenever someone came, how long can you stay? And if they said, oh, I can only stay 10 minutes, then they got 10 minutes of church and everyone would focus on helping them, supporting them, hearing, praying with them before they left. If they come and say, oh, I can be here for a couple hours, then it was more relaxed and they could spend a couple hours together. So be flexible in how you do community because community is not defined by how we do church in the West. Community is defined by the Word and it leaves us open in how often we meet or what we do during that time and so forth. Even the models are left up to us to adapt and adopt as is needed uh, as we go around. So a couple of things with building community before we close is be willing to pay the price. Count the price. What's it going to cost? It may mean that you no longer do church the way you're used to doing it. It may mean that you have all kinds of people that are coming into your home, unbelievers who are there. It may mean um, that uh, you're going to sacrifice your time and your energy and all of these things, maybe your quiet time, maybe your sports, you, you like to watch you know, a particular sport, maybe you're no longer going to have time for that. So be prepared, there may be a cost as you go into this ministry. And then model servant leadership. They need to see what it's like to have Christians who are servant leaders and who serve others and think of others and build community-minded members in your, in your community. They need to think of others, how we can reach out to others making sure that they're helping others and not just coming to help themselves and get for their, something for themselves. And then we plan for how do we assist others who are in need financially or spiritually or in some way? How, how do we as a f community help someone who needs to find a job? How do we help a young man who needs to find a wife? How do we uh, you know, help these people who are in our community in, in, in their uh, Christian lives and in, in growing as, as believers? And if we can be true Christian community, loving and caring and looking after us, other people will look in and will see that community and will be attracted to that. I want to close with a story, and it's not about Muslims. It actually happened in Spain. It's a very interesting story because it shows you what happens when somebody gets the messenger, the message, and the community in order. This is some friends of mine. They were out on the street. They're friends of mine because we're in the same organization. But they were out on the street. Well, they were trying to witness. They went to Spain, and they were witnessing with, um, uh, to the intellectuals. The intellectuals weren't interested. They discovered that if they went out on the street and did open-air kind of meetings, that the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the street people would gather around and listen to them. So they did that, and they were out on the street, and they were preaching, and they were t doing their, their open-air campaign kind of things with their paintbrush and telling the story and, and so forth. And after one meeting, a, a man came up to him, a, a large old a man, is a, a young man, but obviously a drug addict, and he said, I want what you have. His name was Raul. And uh, they prayed with Raul that night. And then they had a decision to make. What do you do with Raul? Do you send him back to sleep in the alley full of needles? Or what do you do with him? And there's a cost that's attached whenever you're going to begin something. And usually God sends us a ministry. It's like it's on a plate. Here's the ministry. What are you going to do with this? And there's a cost attached. That night, those two young men made a decision. They took Raul home to one of these young men to his apartment. And Raul slept on his living room couch. 
And all night Raoul was sick because he was going through withdrawal from drugs. And they were there praying with him and they were there wiping the sweat off of him and trying to feed him some chicken soup and he'd vomit all over the floor and the place was a mess and it stank and Raoul was struggling and they prayed with him. It was a very difficult time. And for three days they were in that apartment with Raoul as he went through the, all the drugs coming out of his body. And at the end of three days, his body was being washed clean of all of these drugs, and he was being freed from them. There was a knock at the door. And there were a couple of other men there, and they said, Raul, we've been looking all over for you. Where are you? And he said, I'm free of drugs. I'm out of the drug lifestyle. And those guys said, well, if you're free of drugs, we want to be free of drugs. And then suddenly there were more young men in the apartment and they were getting off of drugs and vomiting on the floor and throwing up and these guys are going out to buy chicken noodle soup and bring it back and try to feed it to these guys. And then the landlord got upset. Who are these heavily tattooed drug addicts going up and down the elevators and coming in out of the building and so forth? So they got thrown out of the apartment building. They never realized what God was doing. And so they created a community where all these drug addicts lived with them. And they didn't have a concept that they were going to, you, you come in and you leave someday. No, they created a community where these guys could live. And they lived there with them. And they created a community called Bethel. And Bethel was just, uh, they had to help them find jobs. And they had to help them get work. And these guys do Bible studies with them. And it began to grow. And uh, there was no outside money, no outside funding. These guys, they, they had to find, figure it out themselves. And so when they needed money, they had to trust the Lord for money, and they put their work money together, and they, the community began to grow. And they reached out to drug addicts. What's amazing is that 15 years later, there were Betel houses in 50 cities in Europe. In 15 years... There were 50, city, uh, 50 of these houses scattered all through Europe. Drug addicts are welcome to come. If you want to get off of drugs, you can come in. People will pray with you, and you stay there, and you live in the house, and you live in the community. And they go out, and they find people who are on drugs, people who are alcoholics, and say, do you want to be free of this? I used to be an alcoholic, and now I'm free. And if you want to come, just come with me. We've got a bed for you. And they'll take people and bring them in and they find a community where they can live, where they can grow and uh, spiritually, where they can find jobs, find dignity, and uh, they, they continue to live in the Betel community. That has now expanded and exploded and they're going all over the world. There's centers now in the United States. They're in Mexico. They've now targeted and there's planting centers in every state in India. It's all run by drug addicts. All the money is run by drug addicts. 97% of their finances is made by the drug addicts themselves as they work and as they put money back into their community. And thousands and thousands of people are finding Christ and they're coming in. But what is attracting them? They're finding out there's a community of ex-drug addicts that will welcome you if you want to get off of drugs. And it's the community that attracts them. And they come and say, I want to get off of drugs. I want to be like you guys. And so when they go out on the street, they, they tell people, they're inviting them, come and join our community. And it's, it's exploding in growth. Each of the centers in India have over 100 beds in them because people are coming and they have no food. They have, you know, they're on the street and they're saying, come and join us. Because they know within a few months, what they do is after a few months of uh, coming off of drugs, doing some Bible studies, you begin leading Bible studies. You begin being a dorm leader. After two years, you're getting some Bible school, and they'll train you in the Bible, and you have to become a leader because they grow so fast that within two years of coming off the street, you need to be a leader. 
And whenever they start a new center, and we've been asking them, please come over to Canada. I'm in from Canada, and we're begging them, come to Canada. Now, they said our problem is twofold. One, we need a building to start in, and that will cost money, and so where are we going to start? And two is we need a team of drug addicts, ex-drug addicts, who are going to go. Because we never start without a team of ex-drug addicts. We need at least six or eight of them who will go occupy the building and then go out on the street and start bringing people in. And so they begin with community. Evangelism is the second phase, I mean, but community comes first. They set up the community and then invite people to join their community. And that has exploded all around the world. They have messengers who are accepted as messengers because they're from that same background. They have a message and they know how to speak to their own people. They speak the street language. They know how to communicate. And they have a community that's a viable community for someone who's, who's an, a drug addict. And it has taken off. The world is looking for and waiting for, the Muslim world is waiting for communities of people who, from a Muslim background that are reaching out to their own people and seeing them come in. And we as missionaries who go out are to be catalysts to see those communities founded. Whatever they look like, however they, the Lord brings them into being, we are there to be catalysts to help the community come into being, and that community will be reaching out to Muslims all around, and people will come to them. And if they get kicked out of their homes, there's a community that welcomes them. If they can stay in their homes and continue to evangelize, that's wonderful, but they get the support of these, uh, these brothers and sisters. And so the challenge for us is not necessarily how do we um, do evangelism, the question isn't, how do we share the gospel? Because the gospel's the same everywhere we go. The real challenge we face is how do we build loving, warm communities of people from a Muslim background that other Muslims can look at and say, that's a viable community. I could be part of that. I like that. I like what I see. And they want to join us because God is doing something in our midst. Thank you for attending, uh, watching all of these lessons and going through this with us. Bye-bye.